Hello and welcome to the 318 podcast. My name is Peter Wright and I'm head of communications here at the charity 318. I'm joined for this episode by Justin Humphreys. Justin is both an author, a speaker, as well as our joint CEO here at the charity. So welcome, Justin. Thanks, Peter. Good to be back. Also for this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Lee McFarlane. Lee is one of our specialist safeguarding advisor team here at 318, and she's also the strategic lead for our work in Scotland and Northern Ireland. So Lee, it's really good to have you with us today. Thank you, Peter. It's lovely to be here today. So we're carrying on our series, working through our safeguarding pledge. Um, it's a pledge that we launched uh, about a year or so ago, um, and it gives people a positive way of engaging with some of the issues that we experience around safeguarding. Um, it's a chance for churches and other organisations to pledge uh, a way of being, a way of behaving, a way of working that creates safer places um, for people. If you've not yet had a chance to um, see the pledge and look at the pledge, you can find that on our website at 318.org forward slash pledge. So today we're looking at the third statement from our pledge, which is being given the heading conceal nothing, conceal nothing. Uh, it comes with a brief description, which says uh, when abuse is discovered, it's important that it's fully brought into the light so that justice can be served and those that have been affected can receive the help they need. We will not cover up or collude, but be open, transparent and truly repentant about what has happened. So today the topic is conceal nothing. So Justin, I wonder if I can just ask you first of all, um, this idea um, about concealing nothing and that first line that says about how important it is that when abuse is discovered, that it's fully brought into the light. Why is that? Why is that so important a part of this process? Well, I think there's a whole uh, range of reasons why um, this is important. I think first and foremost, um, if we um, if we are transparent rather than um, attempting to conceal, we have a better chance of facilitating justice. Um, justice for those who um, who have been oppressed, who have been disadvantaged, who have been harmed and abused uh, in in a, you know, a multitude of ways, often. Um, and if we kind of go right back to the the meaning the root uh, words for um, for conceal it's made up of two latin words firstly con meaning completely and salaire meaning hidden so to conceal something is to completely hide something so that it, it, it is um, unable to be identified and i suppose if we look at the opposite of um, of that word we we might find transparency uh, and again, uh, root words in Latin, um, trans meaning through and parer meaning appear. Um, so it's really important that um, as best we can, we operate with transparency rather than doing all that we can to prevent things from being um, brought into the light. Um, and uh, we often talk about uh, lifting the lid or shining the light. And that is essentially um, undoing the damage hopefully, to some degree, that has been caused by attempts to conceal. And Lee, I wonder if we can ask you, um, 
from your work, particularly perhaps in Scotland and Northern Ireland, um, there's been some really high profile cases recently, hasn't there, um, that really illustrate this point for us that have included um, attempts to cover up what has happened. Um, what, what would be your, your comments on, on that particular uh, statement there? Yeah, concealment is, is never helpful. It's never healthy and it never brings people into a point of freedom and actually receiving the healing and restoration that they deserve. When, when we conceal things, it, it, it brings about a, a status quo that, that keeps the victim very much the underdog. And we've seen that uh, in Ireland, both north and south, um, over the last 50 years, really, in uh, several occasions, particularly within the church. So, for example, the mother and baby home scandal, which has been very much in, in the press in Northern Ireland and in the Republic of Ireland over the last few months. We, we see a situation where young girls, young pregnant girls who are unmarried, were put into uh, homes where they give birth and their children were taken from them. They, they had no opportunity to consent. They didn't know what happened to their children. And we know that the conditions within which they were treated were incredibly poor. Um, for example, one home in time in the Republic of Ireland, 800 children have been buried in the grounds. Nobody knows exactly who those children are, who their families are, um, and there are therefore 800 mothers out there who don't know what happened to their children. Um, we're at a, a stage now where bringing this situation into light is starting to bring healing and restoration to uh, the children, to the mothers, many of them here now elderly women, um, but it's a process and bringing things into the light takes time. We're, we're at a stage where the Northern Ireland Executive have begun the initial background work to formulating some form of independent inquiry. A review group is working on that at present. Um, and that is very much being done in partnership with victims groups, um, realising that actually their voice is the most important voice in bringing about a situation where, first of all, there is acknowledgement there is repentance and apologies for what has happened. Um, we have had um, the heads of all the major church denominations involved have now apologised to all the victims. The, the heads of governments um, in the UK, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland have also apologised. Um, but full inquiry still needs to take place in order to really allow victims and survivors that space to hear their voice, have their voice heard and um, make sure that that sort of situation never happens again uh, in the church's name. Thanks, Lee. That's right. That's some really powerful examples there of how, how collusion and cover-up um, can really uh, damage uh, people further than the actual abuse um, taking place as well. Justin, we, you spoke earlier about particularly about justice um, for people. How does um, cover-up and collusion uh, work against, against people seeking justice for a particular situation? Well, I think in many ways, uh, as, um, as Lee has, has just said, it, it essentially denies the opportunity for justice. It denies a validation of people's experience. Um, it denies um, it, it denies that the, the due respect that, that ought to be given to our fellow human beings. Um, and ultimately, at the heart of um, attempts to conceal and to cover up is, is an attempt to, um, 
to maintain one's power over another or, or even, you know, an entire group or community. Mm. Um, and that makes it uh, increasingly difficult for those who, who may have spoken up in the past and, and not been heard or, or to have been denied their voice. Um, it makes the attempts that, that need to be undertaken to, um, to uncover um, such injustices more difficult. Um, somebody uh, said uh, not so long ago in talking about the use of uh, non-disclosure agreements, which we may talk about later on, that if reputational damage crisis is not handled correctly earlier on, it becomes harder to manage as it escalates up the chain of command and each progression requires more courageous leadership to address the problem. Um, so what we find is that not only have we denied um, the opportunity for justice for a period of time, but we have actually, um, we have modeled leadership badly uh, and we have um, perpetuated an injustice and in many ways, re-traumatized, in fact, continually traumatized um, individuals uh, whose, whose story is unable to be told. Um, so huge damage um, is done by, um, by concealing and by cover-up. Uh, and sadly, we've, um, we've heard many, many accounts of, of where that has indeed happened. Um, and it's something I think we need to be um, truly um, repentant for. Um, it is uh, a, a great concern that, that such, um, such atrocities as Lee has, has, has talked about um, remain at least partially hidden. Lee, can I ask what you think about, um, so some people might be surprised to find this as one element of our pledge, surprised that collusion and cover-up might actually be a part of this process, might happen in the church. Um, why, why do you think it is part of this process? Why do you think this happens? Um, do you think it's fear? Do you think people it's out of fear or what, what would your take on that be? Um, cover up and collusion happens within the church, I think, for a variety of reasons. I, I don't think that there, there are very many church leaders out there who genuinely set out to cover and collude from the outset. Um, it, it can happen over a period of time. It can happen because of a, a significant event that has they have responded inappropriately to. So it um, can be a case of protecting the organisation's reputation. So, for example, they know that if this particular safeguarding incident became public knowledge, it might ruin their personal reputation, their personal standing, and therefore their income, their work and their reputation uh, within the church networks where they operate, it can negatively impact on the church's reputation uh, and that can directly affect membership levels, funding levels for community projects um, and has a knock-on effect to several other areas of church life. So sometimes it's easier to deny that an incident has happened and continue to uh, appear as if everything is okay. Um, that is it's not necessarily a, a healthy way to start out when a crisis happens. Um, people very quickly can turn to a, a defensive position rather than saying, actually, OK, something has gone very badly wrong here. We need to stop. We need to pause and we need to take ownership of this and deal with it appropriately. Um, whether that's because of, as I say, their own personal 
um, agenda or because of fear, thinking how other people will respond um, to that, how that's going to impact on the wider church community um, and so on, comes into play in this situation. That's really helpful. Thank you. Justin, I think we probably need to be clear for people what we're talking about and maybe what we're not talking about here because obviously there's going to be a balance isn't there between being open and transparent and yet also making sure we put the right things in place to protect people that are involved um, to keep their details to keep their story um, safe and securely shared with the right people a lot of what we talk about in safeguarding isn't it is making sure the right things are shared with the right people in the right way at the right time so how do we navigate that that sort of that balance between those those two things about being open and transparent as well as wanting to uh, safeguard the people involved well you're right Peter I think is a really difficult tension to manage um, in many cases particularly um, and what we often need to be mindful of is that um, at, at the heart of um, uncovering injustices, there will often be um, individuals who will take different views about um, how much of their information, for, for instance, they, they would want to be openly available to others. Um, and, you know, as we have found in, in conducting what we call um, complex case reviews or lessons learned reviews, uh, the need to maintain the anonymity of victims and survivors um, and often to, to extend um, a, a, a broader um, guarantee of anonymity enables people to feel freer and safer to tell their story you know whether that is a victim or a survivor or, or whether that is somebody who's been complicit with um, whatever has gone on within a particular culture or setting that may have led to a, a concealing or a covering up um, and so that that is a difficult tension to, to, to manage. So what we're essentially saying here is that where harm is known or suspected, where there are injustices that have been um, that have been perpetrated, um, that we have to um, shine a light on those things and bring them into the into the light, um, give opportunity for them to be explored and to be learned from, but not at the cost of for instance, victims and survivors who have who have operated with extreme bravery and courage often to to share their story. So, yes, there are differences where we're talking about information, information sharing, um, and we are not always um, able to essentially say, right, here is everything laid out on the table here. Um, because in doing so, we can actually, again, cause um, further damage. But it would be true to say, these are often very difficult decisions to make um, as to what and when uh, to share. Um, so um, th there are no easy answers to this, but I think the approach that we're talking about in terms of concealing nothing within the pledge is about where we um, know that there are matters that, that need to be dealt with and that need to be um, explored within uh, within policies and, and procedural terms that we do that that we make proactive efforts to address those issues rather than kick them under the carpet um, and, and let's be clear about this um, concealing is a proactive um, uh, measure it is something that is entered into deliberately um, I struggle to see how it is possible to accidentally conceal something 
Um, you know, so it is the the efforts that are often made to say, uh, as Lee, Lee has already described, um, my power or the reputation of the organisation I'm a part of or the ministry that I've been involved in um, is threatened by um, by the uncovering of injustices. And it's a, a deliberate attempt to maintain the power balance and the power dynamic in, in that given scenario, rather than to do the right thing, which is to say um, people have been harmed and abused here and therefore that, that deserves and requires uh, our attention. Um, so there is something about the deliberate act of concealment, which then means that the um, the act of lifting the lid is equally deliberate and sometimes takes us out of our comfort zone in order to do that. Um, but we do that knowing that it's the right thing to do. That's great. Justin, thank you. That's really helpful actually to think about it. So what we're talking about here is deliberate intent to cover up and to conceal uh, something that's happened. Um, I'm thinking for the people that are listening, uh, safeguarding leads, uh, church leaders, um, others, um, dealing with any safeguarding situation, particularly if it's been uh, the first time to do that, is is hard. It's um, complex. Um, what might we? What might help and support and advice might we offer people in that position? Lee, maybe I could ask you, um, you've done a lot of work. Um, part of your work is uh, supporting churches. I know you work on our, our helpline receiving calls from people. Um, what might be your your first first piece of advice you might get if someone was to ring you up and say, uh, this, this situation has happened. Um, my church is wanting to uh, think about how they keep it quiet, keep it contained. What might be your first piece of advice to someone in that situation? I think, my, Peter, my first piece of advice to that person would be to know that they are not alone. Very often, if you're the safeguarding leader coordinator within an organisation, you, you may be the only person or one of a small team who's operating within that particular sphere. And it, it can be incredibly difficult to reach out and seek support if a complaint has been made about someone on your senior leadership team, for example. Um, and there's that tension between what, that person making the call to the helpline may know of that person personally as, as their senior pastor, as a friend, as someone they, they play football with um, at the weekends, and what has been alleged to them in the context of safeguarding. So in, encouraging people to actually take a step back from the personal relationship, to look at the facts of what have been said to them, to understand that victims uh, do not make allegations easily, that that initial disclosure is the first step in a journey. Um, some of the people who call our helpline will have safeguarding experience from their, their professional jobs uh, and they're ringing really just for confirmation that their next steps are the correct thing. For others ringing, it's the first time they've ever been in this situation. They may have only taken on the role the week before. Um, 
and they're not sure what to do. So we we will walk them through that process. We will uh, give that advice in, in context, appropriate circumstances. As an organisation, we work across the four UK nations and therefore how things are done is slightly different in each of the nations. Um, and we will make sure that you are taking the right steps um, within your region and, and also within uh, uh, the church context, for example, if they're part of a wider denomination, how things work in terms of safeguarding within that organisation. But for, for people out there who are safeguarding leads or who are involved in running ministries that involve working with vulnerable people, I do think there's a lot can be done in terms of, of preparation and equipping and resourcing both yourself and your church um, to, to support, handle those situations when they happen. So um, get good quality training. If you look in the 318 website, we, we have a host of courses right from foundational training through to very advanced topics to support and equip churches. Um, get a good policy and structure in place. Let people know those things exist create the culture in your church where people feel safe to approach you and tell you what has happened create the culture um, that's healthy and that that people know well we are transparent and we are accountable and that if something does happen then we will deal with it sensitively and appropriately um, it's really important, I think, for me as, as an advisor at 318, that anyone we, we support and, and that's listening to this podcast today knows that, that they are not alone and that there's lots and lots of resources out there to help them should this situation ever arise in their church. That's brilliant. Thank you, uh, Lee. Um, finally, Justin, I wonder if I might go to you and just touch on this last section where we talk about true repentance um like particularly in a in a faith context um that that means certain things doesn't it what would what would you take that to mean and how what's the difference between repentance uh, and true repentance and how might that be um how might an organization display that do you think well i think there are a few things that we could um, that we can consider here um we often see sadly uh situations where um leaders, individuals within organisations that have been found to, to have um, harmed and abused others, that um, apologies are provided, um, which seem to be so general and so devoid of any real understanding of the impact um, that they are rendered meaningless often for those victims and survivors that are intended to receive that apology. Um, so... Um, you know, in many ways, it kind of takes me back to um, the many conversations that I had with my parents as a child um, who would say to me, well, um, sorry only means something if you can demonstrate that, that, um, that it's going to change something about your behaviour. Um, so often, um, in a sense, that repentance, that true repentance has to be um, demonstrated by some form of change. Um, to say uh, sorry, to offer an apology, uh, and to uh, to hope that that really sorts the problem um, only goes part of the way, in actual fact, to validating the experiences of others and to start to put things right. So true repentance requires demonstrable change in behaviours, in attitudes, in beliefs, um, so that there is some level of confidence uh, 
that going forward, those things um, have a chance of not happening again, of being prevented from happening, or at the very least being responded to better often when, when they have been brought into the light. Um, and I think when we think uh, about this within a, within a church context particularly, um, there is an additional um, harm, I guess, that, that is done in terms of the, the breach of trust and faith that must be addressed um, fully uh, in those acts of repentance that come. It was um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who, who said, um, cheap grace offends against the gospel, but nowhere near as much as cheap Episcopal cover-up. Both represent an abuse of ecclesial power, but the latter is arguably greater because the knowledge of evil is concealed by deceit and denied altogether. And that breaches faith and trust. If we have breached both faith and trust, then we've got a, a whole lot of reparation to do. Um, and it starts with an acknowledgement and it starts with a true repentance that shows people that you mean business about what needs to change in the future. That's really helpful, Justin. Thank you. And I think that really spills over into what we'll be talking about in the next episode, which is our fourth statement of the pledge, uh, where we'll be talking about taking responsibility, taking responsibility. And I guess really that's the next step on uh, from what we've been talking about uh, today. Um, our time's up, I'm afraid, but it's been really great to be talking about this topic with you. Uh, thank you to Justin and thank you to Lee for joining us today. If you've been um, impacted by anything we've been talking about today and would like to talk that through with somebody, uh, then our safeguarding helpline uh, is open. You can call us on 0303 003 and details of that are on the website. And also, if you'd like to check out our pledge uh, and consider having your organisation or church to sign up to that pledge, you can view that on our website at 318.org forward slash pledge.